Hi, it's Gracie. Welcome back to the Educator Wellness Revolution. I'm so excited to share our first ever live episode recording with you, an educator-led panel from our Empower Ed Educator Wellness Symposium on December 1st, an event we organized twice a year to share educator wellness learning in Washington, D.C. A little background on this panel. Lately in Washington, D.C., we've been experiencing a very tragic and unsettling time of community violence, which is definitely being felt in our schools. There are many city and education leaders trying to answer the question of how to establish a sense of safety. We have noticed how rarely educator voices and solutions are centered in this deeply important discussion. For this, we put together an educator-led panel on the topic of school safety and educator healing and shared it with a room full of Washington, D.C. educator wellness leaders. These five inspiring educators are Calvin Fletcher from Garnett Patterson Stay, Catrice Fuller from Monument Academy, Chandler Denard from Kimball Elementary, and Renee Rouse from Friendship Public Charter Schools. As you'll hear in our conversation, these educators have so many important insights and ideas that come from working day in and day out with students who are experiencing these traumas. They want to center mental health, student agency, and community investment to help regain a sense of safety for both students and staff in Washington, D.C. We heard amazing feedback from our symposium attendees on this conversation and are so excited to share it with you. Please enjoy and share with someone who may also need to hear this, these important educator solutions. Thank you. Welcome to the first ever live recording of the Educator Wellness Revolution podcast. We are super, super happy to be here with an incredible panel of people uh, who work in our schools and are working every day to promote educator wellness. And we are today live from our second annual Educator Wellness Symposium, where we're focusing today specifically on school safety and healing. And so we have this panel that's going to bring us a lot of brilliance uh, and wisdom about how they do that work every day to promote those things in our schools. And we're so excited to hear from them. So we're going to kick it off by uh, ha having each of you just uh, introduce yourself and tell us about your role at your school. Hello, my name is Raynell Rouse. I am at Friendship Tech Prep, which is located in Ward 8. I am the theater teacher, the freshman lead teacher, and I also am the coordinator for SYEP over the summertime. Awesome. Good morning, everyone. My name is Catrice Fuller. I'm the Chief of Family and Community Engagement at Monument Academy Public Charter School, the one and only boarding middle school in the District of Columbia. Peace. Good morning. My name is Calvin Fletcher. I'm a dean of students at formerly known as Roosevelt State Opportunity Academy, which is all Chinese school. But now we have changed our name to Garnett Patterson. And my name is Chandler Dennard. I'm a music teacher at Kimball Elementary School in Ward 7. Amazing. Thank you, panelists, so much for being here and for the work, of course, that you're doing every day in this. And we brought the, the four of you together because we know that you have very unique perspectives, both different roles and in different school environments, but are working through these challenges every day as it relates to school safety and to educator healing, but also directly how that relates to student healing. And and we know that we are in a time where there has been an enormous amount of stress, both from community violence, from coming out of the pandemic and the traumas that everyone has experienced. So we want to kind of start by stepping back and just the how have you seen things change? Looking back in the past five years, which is kind of incredible to say that now, but if we want to look back pre-pandemics and now we're talking about really the last five years with regards to the way students show up to school um, and how that might be different now and how safe our schools are. 
And then what factors do you think have created those changes? Uh, so I'll let anybody jump in and start us off. I'll jump in. One thing I've noticed post pandemic is it's a bit more pulling teeth to get scholars to invest in what's taking place inside of the classroom. Um, realistically, everyone has had to readjust mm -hmm. from being able to be in the house, do things on your own time, kind of sort of joint class when they feel like it do work when they feel like, whereas in now we're back into the brick and mortar structure. So it's not as much leeway or freedom that we had during the pandemic. <laughs> so it's not as easy to get buy-in. You may have to work a bit harder. Yeah. I've noticed through that gap uh, where they weren't in school, the deficit in social skills and interpersonal skills. And more importantly, post-pandemic, our students are very, very quick to become violent and lashed out more noticeably than previous the pandemic to me so mm -hmm. i think that's a major issue you think just like it, what has made them i mean kind of in a status of high alert right mm -hmm. when people do so that violence, so yeah. what do you think has elevated uh, kind of the default right to that level i would say the shifting that took place unexpectedly for everyone we went from living a quote-unquote normal life to a pandemic came and just slowed everything down and i think that they went from being in social settings with other people and learning social cues to being in their room by themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And honestly, while we had the COVID pandemic, pandemic, I feel that we're currently in a social pandemic, mm -hmm. which is why we are experiencing so much trauma, the community violence, the social deficit due to the COVID pandemic that we're seeing with our students. And I know for us, with us being a boarding school, I would say five years ago, the student and family population that we attract, attracted at the time had a lot to do with maybe like family instability in the sense of like housing instability and things of that nature. But who and what we attract now is solely for safety purposes. Mm -hmm. I would love for my child to be here because they're out of this community. They're with you for five, six days out of the week to be safe. Yeah. So with that comes a lot of the trauma, which creates a lot of the vicarious trauma that that the other stakeholders are all experiencing because this social pandemic right now is absolutely absurd, which keeps all of our kids in survival mode. Yeah. Um, and I'd just like to add, I see a lot of this because I see every kid in my whole school and have seen them for since, you know, I've been in my school eight years. So I especially saw the social trauma, just the physical and mental trauma coming in with our students who were coming in on like first grade and had never been in school before. And when I look back and was comparing to the kids who had been in school, and I was like, why are we having all these problems? Why do they not know basic skills and these sorts of things? They had never really been in school before. It was like they were three or four in first grade. Mm -hmm. It was just a kind of a shock. And I think it was a shock to everyone who was teaching school at that time. Just to follow up, do you, have you all seen like things that, things that you're doing or things that other educators are doing? that are helping give students that equilibrium. I think that that seems like it's, it's been missing or is harder uh, to achieve right now. Um, yes, I would say the post-pandemic, I would say the the push for restorative practices and restorative circles instead of the traditional approach to discipline, which is suspend and send home and trying different avenues to get the students to learn these social skills and learn how to 
resolve conflict with their peers and things of that sort. I think they have adjusted to that and have embraced that. These are teachable, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's an important thing to say, right? Like these are these are things that can be taught. We don't always make the time and space for them to be taught. But I think like there was a lot of language coming out of the pandemic in the first semester. Everybody was going to be back full time. We need to dedicate a certain amount of weeks to social emotional learning before we yeah. jump back into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. It seemed like that passed very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden yes. it was like, we got to get back to it right now. Yeah. We got to get those scores. We got to get them back up. So like, how do we not lose that opportunity? I think it's going to take a mind shift from the top down. And what I mean by the top, I mean like legislators, policymakers. Because we have to recognize that if we do not stop to triage, our children will never be available to accept the classroom. Mm-hmm. They're physically present, but they are not mentally mm-hmm. and emotionally present. Okay. And it's like even with dealing with behaviors, right? Sometimes a five-minute conversation can lead to a two-hour crisis. We have to think about it in the same way when it comes to the classroom. Sometimes a 15, 20, 30-minute well, wellness conversation can lead Two hours of distracted learning. We have to shift our mindsets from the top down. And I think also what's vital is building those relationships. Mm -hmm. So you're able to learn your students and find out what the scholar like. Being a theater teacher, everybody doesn't want to act. But if you're creative, you can help me work the lights. You can help me build a set. So instead of just saying, oh, you just sit over here, giving them the space to create and to do what they love to do because I'm taking the time to build that relationship. If you don't build a relationship, you'll never know what your students need. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the building block of everything. And I think it's, it's just as true for adults, right? Like if the adults in the building aren't building the relationships and then modeling those relationships, then the students aren't doing that either. Right. And that goes back to that cycle of student wellness, educated wellness. Katrice, what you said about it starts from the top is a really good segue here to when you see district decision makers trying to create safer schools right now, there's a lot of conversations about how to do that. What do you wish they would pay more attention to? I wish they would stop to breathe. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that because I sit in so many of those conversations with the DC council. And one of the things that I notice is they recognize that this is a high priority, but no one knows where to start, which is understandable. Yeah. There's so many compounding issues at one time. It's like we talk about the OVO crisis, the housing crisis, the wellness crisis, the mental health crisis, like the youth violence crisis. There's so many things at once. But what I would love to see and think that they should do is one, get into the community. Mm. No, first, speak to each other. And then two, <laughs> two, get into the communities to truly assess a lot of times the talk, if you will. Um, and, th- and this could equate to like school leadership sometime as well. We assume what we think is needed yeah. instead of just yeah. stopping to assess the stakeholders. Kids, what do you need? Families, what do you need? Yeah. Educators, what do you need? And do internal and more localized assessments to find that one definitive point to say, this is actually where we should start. Yeah. Um, because trying to start on everything at once, we'll never get anything done. Uh-huh. I totally agree with that. I think uh, decision makers should pay more attention, like like Katrice stated, to the communities that our students come from and focus more so on the things that they need because the stressors and the things that they're going through, they bring all of that into our schools that we explain vicariously. And it's finding that sweet spot. Every school is different. Mm -hmm. Every ward is different. Mm -hmm. Figuring out what everybody needs. Yeah. And I just want to piggyback off of that. 
I agree with everything that everyone's saying. But um, one thing I really think that leadership has to start doing, and I mean leadership all the way up, um, is start listening to the people who it matters the most to. Mm. Like us, <laughs> um, like the students, the parents, the educators, um, which I think people are starting to do more and more so because they're like, we've tried all everything else. It doesn't work. Let's finally yeah. listen to the people who work there. You know? um, so I think that's getting better. But just listening to what because we I mean, people who work with kids every day in, in the trenches, a lot of things we don't know, but a lot of things we do know, too, as well. So just listening and being respectful of our opinions. Yeah, we definitely want to shift that, right? We don't want it to be, we've talked to everybody else, and so now let's talk yeah. to the educators yeah. in the school. But I think that there's a lot of things you mentioned that are that generate a lot of attention and energy, and often they're the most controversial decisions of the, the kinds of safety approaches that people disagree on, right? But as Empower Ed, our, our fellows were thinking this year about what are we what are we going to advocate for in this budget cycle in this year? Um, we're like, how do we come to consensus about some things that, that everybody thinks would improve safety? And there were things in there like out of school time, for example, like a conflict resolution curriculum. What are some of the things that you all think are like, these are consensus. Everybody believes in them. Why aren't we doing more of them? What are some of those consensus areas? Restorative practices. Mm-hmm. And not just talking about it as a fad, but actually giving the teachers, giving the counselors, giving every single person who interacts with the students per the reason why we're even here, the training they need. To, practice, to have restorative practices. We sit in so many PDs mm-hmm. that we'll probably never touch that information again. So actually using that time to maximize being able to learn those restorative practices so we can implement them into the classroom and have better classroom control. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I, I think in addition to that is defining the language. Yes, we are a city that prides itself on school choice, but I feel that we are at a pivotal time in the city where we need to define the language Mm. so that no matter which students interact with what adults, no matter the school, there's a similar language when it comes to restorative approaches, when it comes to behavioral approaches, everyone is kind of saying the same thing. And again, this is the city of school choice, but I feel that if we had the same language internally in schools, then shared that language in our community for our community to adopt, especially right now where safe passage is such a main major thing. So they're getting all these external entities to support schools, but everyone has a different language um, and a different motive. So to define the motive, create a universal language that we can teach educators, teach family, and that all of the stakeholders doing the work can. I would add to that an intentional time and space and push for wellness. Yes. Wellness for our staff, but also wellness for our students and wellness for their family. Yeah. Yes. So speaking of like creating the, the time and space for that support, right? Mm-hmm. What is it that educators need um, to better support students and families right now? Especially there is a huge lack of mental health clinicians in our schools. And so we're trying to do a lot of things both in the long term to how do we have a better pipeline for that? Because we need those clinicians both way more of them for students. And we also need them for our staff. Um, but, and so both, what do we do about that? But what do we do to provide other kinds of supports knowing that we have that shortage right now? Oh, I can actually start with this one. 
And mind that we are openly blessed to have a full well-being team, our chief of well-being, yeah. <laughs> um, who has spearheaded such amazing work. But one of the things that we did notice a few years back, we did start dialectical behavior therapy mm-hmm. as a tier one intervention school while we're teaching all of the um, kids the skills. But as the pandemic hit and now the social pandemic is hit, we have recognized that we, in a sense, have to individualize the adults, the educators. Relationship building in schools is major, right? But even still, students see us as the teacher. They they view us at, or know us by our titles and not as individuals. Yeah. So now that Ms. Nelson and the team and Empower Ed has done such an amazing push to connect to staff on an interpersonal and personal level to humanize us, to individualize us, it has, one, built a camaraderie amongst us at staff, but it's also shown the students that we have so many similarities. We, too, are experiencing this grief, these traumas, these things with you. So how can we partner in the work yeah. to move forward? Because a lot of times kids view us as you all have no idea what mm-hmm. we're experiencing, what mm-hmm. we're feeling. But to break down and humble ourselves in a sense yeah. to say, yeah. no, we, we are kind of all at a similar baseline. It starts the necessary conversations and it propels the necessary work that has to happen in school. Mm-hmm. I would just like to jump in. <laughs> so I've been doing a research project. Um, this is actually my second year of um, a research project um, through the Washington Teachers Union on um, educator mental health and well-being. Um, and I started it because I really wanted to find out why teachers were leaving the profession. Um, and as I got into the project, I found out that it was really a more mental health issue. And a lot of the teachers that I have talked to, a lot of their responses have been, we need the same kind of support that our students need. Mm-hmm. They want us, people want us to be able to talk. We don't know how to talk. Some people don't know how to talk to them. Yeah, we want the, we need the same supports. And um, a couple of things, I am just that we just kind of started at my school, like the, the per, um, she comes in, she's a um, school psychologist. But she's also actually started offering um, teachers the same kind of services mm-hmm. that she yeah. offers to students um, just because she saw the need. Um, so I think that's a good place to start is you you don't want to give the kids these things, these things, but then the pe- people who are delivering them don't have the same tools. Yes. So I would say at our institution, we created a wellness committee where we have a um, committee of staff who are dedicated to promoting positive mental health for our staff and students. And through this committee, um, what I would like to emphasize is that we were introduced to um, a peer-to-peer consultation team, right, where we'll be those staff members in the school who can't support our fellow staff members who may need that check-in. Me being a store, I'm a dean of students, I have to literally interact with every adult in the building, right? right? And so not to say that I can take all of it, but a lot comes my way, right? Yeah. And so with this peer-to-peer consultation, it'll provide you with something that's not clinic- clinical or like therapeutic, but like a evidence-based tool that will like strategize this conversation, but also be solution-focused. I want to shout out to Ms. Star Weiss, who's uh, providing that training um, yeah, yeah. on the peer-to-peer consultancy and, and also that work where clinicians are in schools, because I think that's that's super, super important. Any other supports? I yeah. think that, and I'm just a theater teacher, so I like to give examples. My school has an urban ecology program, so every year we have a Harvest Fest. And during the Harvest Fest, we had the opportunity to bring in Joy Factor and kind of have organized chaos where the teachers and the students were completing activities together. 
from recreating TikToks to playing dancing games to playing musical chairs with each other, playing giant Jenga. And I think that having bringing in that joy factor where oftentimes the students and the staff feel like them against us, we were able to work together. And I think that actually brought joy and some sort of healing amongst the two uh, parties. I'm so glad you said that in the ecology part too, because uh, you may remember it was there was a string of violent incidents uh, as there has been in our uh, Empowered Ed chat. We were talking about just kind of what, what we should do. And, and one of the things, suggestions that a teacher brought up was that they felt that if this if the students were more in charge of the natural environment that surrounded their school, they would feel more care for it in some mm-hmm. way. And these things wouldn't be happening in the immediate vicinity of our schools. As much. I thought that was incredibly interesting. Yes. And then we had a whole bunch of teachers respond so positively to that. That was like, yeah, you know, I really feel like if we took time out of the day and they were taking care of the neighborhood, that's part of what students were doing. And they were doing that with the educators that would create a kind of different perception of the environment. So curious what you think about that, but also just this, like, what is this impact of community violence right now? And there, people are so affected on it on a lot of different levels. How do we both have more ownership over our own communities to do something about that? And what other approaches do you think we need? I think the community violence is so evident and it's so unfortunate. Uh, me being a, um, a DCPS student myself and growing up here, I, I didn't even see it this way. You know, I think the homicide rate is at over 250, I believe, now in D.C., and that's the highest it's been in two decades. So I'm I'm very uh, disappointed in that, and I can see how it affects our students on a daily basis, not only our students, but our staff on a daily basis, where Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we lose two students. How do you deal with that as an educator? And you have to show up Monday. And you see them, your student who you talk to every day face on the news. It's just unfortunate. So, yeah, we're, we're, de- we're definitely at a special time. Yeah. And it creates traumatic immunity for the students where they think that it, what they're experiencing is okay. They don't display the emotions. It's just like putting on their pants every day. So I think one thing I'm able to do is bring to the forefront it's not okay. And being transparent and letting them know, I experienced this and it made me feel this way. How is it for you? And I can acknowledge that that is somewhat making me vulnerable and could take a toll on a person. But again, in building those relationships and creating a safe space, it helps them be aware that what they're experiencing is not okay. So I think that with that traumatic immunity, they just get caught up in that cycle, the vicious cycle in this violence of the streets and just acknowledging with them, this is not okay. Yeah. I think the COVID pandemic did have a lot to do with what you're describing as well, too, because it's lost a lot of the opportunity to learn how to emote. So I know a lot of what we see in our school community students and sometimes us as the adults, we just don't know how to emote or even express that. And so when it does come out, it may come out or project in maladaptive ways, or it may be that whole total complete meltdown. But um, to speak to the environmental portion, it is truly important to create and foster a space that does feel safe so that 
students and the adults can say, you know what, I, I'm not okay. <laughs> and I know it's something that we're, we've all been practicing and we may stop in the hallway and check in on one another. And I know like one of the things that's always shared now is, is I'm here. And we understand when someone says I'm here is you're physically here, but you may not be mentally here, but at least to start sharing the language in regards to there's so many emotions you can feel and that it's okay in this environment to state that. And, and it does start with the adults showing yeah. a level of vulnerability because we're all experiencing it. On that story, I was told that just shocked me, blew me like right out of the water. I was talking to a fellow teacher at another school about how your week was, how your week. It was like, oh, it wasn't so good. We had, we had shots fired in the neighborhood and we were on the playground and I was, he was like, we all had to drop. And I was like, what is that? What do you mean drop? And he means that he and the students, every time it happens, have to drop to the floor, to the ground and just lay there until it passes. And then they are supposed to go. And I was like, I said, and what happens after? And he's like, we go back inside the building and start back up for the rest of our day. Yeah, and this is just something they're learning. Right, it's like a normal, it's supposed to be. And I was like, I was completely floored by it. Like, I was like, I I know if I experienced that, which we all have experienced school violence stuff, but just the thought of people just dropping to the ground and just having to stand back up and go back inside and, oh, let's learn something now. Yeah. I mean, the degree to which, just like my kids were actually talking to me on their way to school the other day about the drills they've been doing and all of that and how many lockdowns they've had during the year because there's, there's a shooting in the vicinity of the school or yeah. there's something happening outside of the school. And they talk about it with such a, a normalcy, mm-hmm. right? To go back to that immunity part, it's, it's really sad. What effect do you think it's having on the educators and, and their ability to sustain themselves in the profession? Oh, it's hard. And I know a lot of times educators feel like we, one, have to be the exemplar. We have to be the persons that hold it all together. So we don't, Sometimes we just straight up stonewall and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but because it's just that, you know, that unsaid connotation that, okay, I got to stand in front of these kids. I got to hold it together, even though I am personally agree in our school community. What was it? A duration of five or six months. We lost three kids, two adults mm-hmm. in our school community. So three students, two parents and like two active parents were always around. And here we are, like, do we grieve today? Do we just stand up and smile today? Like, what do we do? So it is putting us in this matrix, if you will, of how do we act? How do we show up as the adults in this space? And just, again, learning to shift our mindset that sometimes showing up as the adult in the space saying, hey, I'm not okay as well, fosters that relationship, recognizes that this is just not a get up from the playground and go inside moment and that we have to stop and have this conversation. Yeah. It creates anxiety as well. For sure. One thing that's really prominent in addition to the gun violence is car thefts. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be transparent. Every day I'm looking out the window to make sure my car is still parked outside. And my school doesn't have a lot of parking. The parking is limited. Mm -hmm. So if you don't make it inside of the parking garage, you have to park on the street. So it's that anxiety of, is my car going to be there when I leave out? Are my items going to be taken out of my car just because of the heightened crime that's taking place? Not saying I necessarily feel like it's my scholars that would do it, but I work in Ward 8 and I'm not oblivious to what's taking place in the community. I go back to just sort of emphasizing the intentionality when these things are occurring, to have that space and that time. So like, 
those students shouldn't have to just go back into the school and continue on like as a, a normal day. They should have a structured time to be breathed, to decompress, to something in place for that. And, and like uh, Katrina said, we're just stonewall. We don't know what to do because there's nothing in place when these things occur. I mean, yes, the grief counselors come, but no one knows these grief counselors. So they hardly talk. I mean, they can try to create conversations, but the relationship isn't there. So they're yeah. just walking in the hallway, you know? So Yeah. And I, I want to transition into what we think can be done about it and shout out that we were at stay yesterday talking about our, our plan uh, on what we do in the event of traumatic incidents and working together with a team of people to say, what are the bottom lines, like what needs to happen, right? And so one of those things we said was like, the people who are directly affected by an incident, they should be urged to go home, right? Um, If they can do that. We are also having a complex conversation about actually, maybe they feel that their community is at school, right? And that's not what they want at that moment, because they will feel alone if they go home. And so what they want is to be in a community of their colleagues still. So it gets really complicated, right? And one of the things people always tell us is what they want is everybody needs to have a common message about what happened. Yeah. Um, because in that confusion, there's a lot of stress built up, right, about what is actually happening in, a, in the event of violence or a traumatic incident. But this is something that you can do, right, that you can establish norms around. That we can say when something like this happens, we have a protocol for dealing with this that is more human-centered, right, yeah. that is responding in a healing way. So let's look at the kind of district level now. What is it that district officials could do? What is it the district as a whole could do to provide your school something that would make the biggest difference, right, in terms of a safer, healthier environment for students and the staff? If you had your magic wand, what are those things the district would be doing right now? Mm. Funding CBOs who are here willing and ready to do the work in our school communities, who are closer to our school communities and look like, sound like, feel like our school communities so that they can push into our school. Mm. (laughs) I'm giving teachers the time and the day to address the things that are going on in the school community. It should be just as important as any other lesson that's going on during the day. We should. We need to stop teaching kids to just. Oh, we need. They have to pass this test at the end of the year. They have yeah. to pass this. Test. No, they have to pass a lot. That's really one of the biggest things that I would like to see happen. Yeah, I don't think we talk enough too about the connection between those two things, right? Yeah. Which is like you're not going to do the other thing well unless we start with the human, right? So even even if your primary objective, you're like, look, this is my job and I've got metrics to meet and i got to keep my job. Like, none of that's going to happen, right? Unless we slow down in the ways we need to so that, so that people feel psychologically safe, so that people feel that school is a place where they are, can focus on learning, right? And, and feel safe. Mm-hmm. I think consi- creating consistent spaces to ask the scholars what they need. Oftentimes I'll have a student say, I'm sitting on a panel and they'll never hear from the people who invited them to the panel again. Or we'll get invited to events where, for lack of better words, the scholars are just like photo ops for the pictures and stuff. Mm. And it's not really actively asking them what they want consistently. I think sometimes it sounds good to say, hey, we hosted this event for high school students. But are you consistently providing that space? It takes me two months to make students feel comfortable enough to act in my class. It doesn't just happen off of the first activity. So is it happening consistently? 
So you're actively getting what they need because as educators, we're teaching them how to empower themselves. And I believe you're doing that because you're here. So is the city providing the students with the space consistently to say how they feel Mm -hmm. so that they can take that information and create change? And I would just say, well-intended programs to support our uh, youth that we serve that focus more on mental liberation and emotional regulation, but with great intentions, well-intentioned. Not like the app for the photo ops, not just to check off a list and say we did this. Yeah. But more impactful. Yeah. And things that are able to change mm-hmm. because someone's wants and needs or places or an individual's wants and needs one week to the next are going to be totally different or maybe totally different. And so I think a lot of times in education, or people, policies get put in place, things get put in place. Okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, it may not work. Or things change, life changes, things happen in the community. Things just, So just things need to be flexible to be able to change on a needs-based life, you know, just things to change within life. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I want to thank you all for providing just an incredible, real experience, right? Because you're all doing this every day. And so your experiences are informed by the students that you're thinking of actively in your minds right now. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we think it's so important to center the voices of educators, which is that you're not thinking about it abstractly or thinking about students you may have been with 10 years ago, but you're, you're thinking about like the student you're going to go see later this afternoon or that you were with yesterday. And so that, that that's why it's so important to hear from you directly and why we need to make sure that the people who are making decisions that affect your classroom are hearing directly what it is that you need so that we can start to, to really build that healing and provide that space for our students. So let's give a big round of applause to our panel. And for those listening on the podcast, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Educator Wellness Revolution podcast. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to another educator wellness advocate and rate us five stars so others can discover our podcast. We also hope you stay in touch. We'd love to hear your questions, ideas, and recommendations for future podcast guests and themes. Just email us at wellness at weareempowered. That just looks like weareempowered.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and TikTok with the same handle as empowereddc or visit us at weareempowered.org. Thanks again. We are all part of this educator wellness revolution and we really appreciate your time and energy. Mm